Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatness of your love for us that knows no height or depth or breadth or length, but comes fully to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask by the presence and ministry of your Holy Spirit in this place that you would open our hearts and open our minds that we may see Jesus for who he is and for who we are in him. Lord, convict us our sin, forgive us our sin, and set us free to live for you above all else. For your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Criticism happens. Yeah? Criticism happens. I'm not talking about the helpful criticism that is good for us in every area of our life. I'm talking about unhelpful criticism. I'm talking about the self-righteous, condescending, hurtful criticism that we are exposed to. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Not constructive criticism. Self-righteous, condescending, hurtful criticism. When that happens, how do you respond? Do you flee? Are you kind of like that cartoon rabbit that that runs away bashfully and fearfully? How do you respond? Do Do you escalate the conflict? Like Key and Peele, substitute teacher. You want to go to war, Blackie? How do you respond to criticism? Do you run away? Do you escalate? Or maybe there's a third option. Well, uh, this morning we turn our attention to those who oppose Jesus. And what we find in our gospel reading this morning is that John wants us to see how Jesus handles personal attack. And his reaction to those who criticize him is yet another reason to believe that he is the Messiah. Even when he's mocked and ridiculed, Jesus speaks the truth in love. In the face of personal attack, Jesus embraces criticism in order to share the gospel. Now, as I was thinking and reading and praying through this scripture this week, it dawned upon me that in almost 30 years of following Jesus, I have never heard anybody preach on this text. And I thought to myself, well, maybe it's because I haven't been in good churches (laughs) But then I realized that this is a pretty complicated text and it'd be really easy to read and move on or to just pass over altogether. When you hear it, it's like, a, it's like a soup with a lot of parts and it seems clouded and confusing and we're not really sure we want to taste it. But we're going to look at it this morning. We're going to unpack those ingredients and we're going to see exactly what Jesus is doing in the face of personal attack. This is a fascinating passage. And John is including it in his testimony for a very significant reason. So um, I hope to help us um, see, see Jesus and see what that reason is. So the scene 
uh, is once again the temple courts. Jesus is in the temple courts, and he's actually moved from the center of the temple courts to the side of the temple courts, an area known as the treasury. So um, in the court of women, there is a colonnade, and in the colonnade surrounding the court of women are 13 boxes. These boxes are called trumpets. And this is where the people of God would come with their tithes, with their offerings, and generously and from their heart uh, give to the Lord as he commands. And it's, it's here that Jesus is sitting and teaching, right in the midst of the treasury. And it's a good reminder to us that uh, God loves a cheerful giver. That God calls us, invites us to give generously and from our hearts as an act of worship to Him and to His purposes. And we're living into that as the family of God at grace. We're, we're obeying God's command. We're living in and practicing His teaching. What Jesus holds up in the New Testament is what we are practicing here in giving a tenth of our income to the work of God in and through grace. And not just uh, checking that box, but doing it as an act of worship and asking God for the grace to surpass it. That we might live into the fullness of the New Testament teaching of generosity above and beyond the tithe alone. And I just want to um, encourage you, particularly in the summer months, to keep living in to your identity in Christ as a generous and sacrificial giver. And to know that there's a lot of exciting things that God is doing in our midst. Um, We've got new staff members that we're trying to onboard uh, later this summer. We've got renovation that we're trying to do in the gathering um, hall and in the kitchen. We've got snack packs for kids. We've got kids that we're, we're feeding this summer. So don't hold back on your giving. I know in the summer it's hard and sometimes we forget. I'm speaking about myself. Sometimes I forget. But keep that up. And, and if you haven't um, come to the place where you've begun to tithe or to surpass the biblical tithe, I want to encourage you to start now. This is a great time to do that. And as I was reminded in a conversation this morning, God uh, invites us to do that for our own benefit. Um, And when we're not doing that as a family, we're handicapping our own spiritual growth and we're handicapping our growth to live into the mission that God has called us. So um, we're not going to go any more deeply into that. If you want to read more about our theology of giving, there are um, our From the Heart booklets on the uh, welcome table in the gathering hall. I want to encourage you to go through that. But it's a good reminder as Jesus is sitting teaching um, in the treasury Uh, in the temple courts where people are coming to give their tithes and offerings. And as he's sitting there and teaching, some religious leaders come to criticize him. They're not real fond of Jesus. They don't like what he's been teaching. And they come to call him out. Now remember the last couple of messages um, in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8. Since the Feast of Tabernacles, two days ago at this point, Jesus has been making some remarkable claims about himself. Remember? Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Jesus is saying, I'm God's provision. 
He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He says, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at this woman. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus has been claiming to be God's provision, God's presence, God's protection, and God's path to the Father. He is unashamedly professing himself to be Messiah. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, God in the flesh. And many believe, but many of the religious leaders are offended and they reject him. And here in our gospel reading this morning, they come to let him know. They come to let him have it. Picture um, the mafia. Better yet, picture yourself being in the mafia. Okay? Go ahead, go ahead, get yourself in your Holy Spirit captured imagination. Get yourself in character. You've read the books, you've seen the movies. Okay? You're in the mafia. And you're about to be accused of a crime in court. And there's a witness, and he's threatening you. He's threatening your business. He's threatening your uh, livelihood. He's threatening your reputation. And he's about to testify against you and ruin it all. Now, you're in the mob, right? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Okay, there's, there's, there's several possibilities. Okay, first, you could kidnap this guy and threaten him so he'd keep quiet. Which is exactly what the religious leaders try and do at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember in John 7? Some wanted to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him. And finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked him, Why didn't you bring him in? The religious leaders try to kidnap Jesus. They try to seize him so that he'll be quiet, but their kidnapping attempt fails. Okay, you're in the mafia. Kidnapping fails. What do you do next? Okay, well, second, you could seek to discredit this witness by showing that he doesn't possess good character. You could try and and trap him and expose his bad character. And we see this on the day after the feast when the religious leaders try and trap Jesus by making him either condemn or condone the woman caught in adultery. But Jesus is too smart for him, right? And their trap fails. Okay, mobsters. Now what are you going to do? You can't seize him. You can't trap him. Well... You could super lawyer up and try and get his testimony thrown out of court on a technicality. But this happens. You've seen the reality TV shows. You've seen the real court shows. I mean, I watch Law and Order. I know this happens. We, 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 we try and get things, you know, thrown out on technicalities and people walk even when they're guilty. And that's where we come in the gospel lesson this morning. 
the religious mob is trying to get Jesus thrown out on a technicality. Will you open your Bibles to John chapter 8? We're going to look at verses 13 through 28. Uh, if you have a blue Bible there, John chapter 8, 13 through 28 is on page 894. The religious mob gets super litigious and tries to discredit Jesus on a technicality. Look at verse 13. The Pharisees challenge him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Okay, in Jewish law, no one can ever be convicted on the testimony of a single witness. Two or three witnesses are always required. And we see this several times in the Old Testament, but one place, um, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay, so nothing was to be believed unless more than one person could attest to it. And so the religious leaders are applying this law to Jesus. Their point being that whether or not his claim to be Messiah is true, it's simply invalid. It is the testimony of just one man concerning himself, and therefore it's got to be discounted. It's got to be thrown out. Now, think about what's happening here. I don't know how you picture this scene in your mind's eye, but this, this is conflict, there is, there is heat, there is tension, there is suspense that's going on in this scene. This is a dark scene. It takes a lot of chutzpah to sue the Son of Man. That's what's going on here. Hebrews call it Chutzpah. In South Texas, we've got another name for it, but that's what it is. It takes a lot of chutzpah to sue God. Can you imagine going toe-to-toe with a living God on a legal technicality, citing the very law that he wrote? Chutzpah. And in response to this charge of invalidity, Jesus makes three points. And we find this in verses 14 through 18. Jesus answered, Even if I do not bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge... My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Okay, there's a lot there. That, to me, that feels really complicated and soupy at first. Until you break it down, it's actually quite clear. It's even simple. First... Jesus is saying that his testimony is outside the framework of human experience. 
And that because his testimony is outside the frame and the parameters of human experience, it is outside the framework and the parameters of the law. Jesus is saying, I am God, and therefore I am not confined to the laws that I made for you, not me. See what he's doing there? And then secondly, Jesus says that even if the law was for him, and even if he was inside the law, that he does have two witnesses. That God the Father is bearing witness to him through his signs and miracles and that he, as God the Son, is bearing witness to himself. And therefore, Jesus' testimony is acceptable, not just because he has two witnesses, the Father and himself, but because he has two perfect witnesses. And third, he's saying that for these reasons, his testimony, unlike theirs, is completely impartial. Human testimony is limited. It doesn't possess full knowledge and it's always tainted by some measure of sin. But Jesus is saying that he is not limited by his humanity. And since he is also God, he has perfect knowledge and he is without sin. And therefore his testimony is completely true and wholly trustworthy. Now who can argue with that? They can't. Their attempt to discredit him on a legal technicality falls way short. He completely decimates their case. Now, you're the mob. What are you going to do? Someone's threatening your business. Your reputation is at stake. Your livelihood is on the line. You've just worked really hard to seize him. That's failed. You've worked really hard to trap him. That's failed. You've worked really hard to discredit him on a legal technicality. And that fails. You're going to be pretty mad. And that's exactly how the religious leaders start to feel. What we see here is they're mad. And rather than concede and walk away, they turn up the heat. And they escalate the conflict by getting personal. The deteriorating relationship between Jesus and the religious leaders just sinks to a new low. So unsuccessful in every other attempt so far, the religious mob resorts to making fun of Jesus. This becomes junior school bullying at its worst. They ridicule Jesus. They mock Jesus with three very passive, aggressive, insulting questions. Where is your father? Will you kill yourself? And who are you? Look at verse 19. Where is your father? Where's your father? Where's your father? This is a rejection of Jesus' statement about the second witness to him being the Messiah. 
But it's a lot more than that. They're making fun of the stories surrounding Jesus' birth. That Joseph is not his real father. They're mocking Jesus. They're making fun of Jesus. They're calling him an illegitimate child. Asking, where is your father? Is a passive aggressive way of calling him a bastard. Look at verses 20 and 21. Jesus isn't moved to anger. It's beautiful. He simply responds. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And in essence, do you hear how Jesus is responding? He's saying, guys, such questions aren't asked. And such statements aren't made by those who really know me and really know who my dad is. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders that, hey, despite all of your high position and all of your great studies, you don't recognize me and you don't recognize the Father also. Because if you knew the Father and you knew me, you wouldn't refuse to come to me to have life. What Jesus does is he, he speaks the truth in love. He doesn't run away and he doesn't like retaliate. He says, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And where I'm going, you can't come. This is coming out of a heart of compassion. Jesus is speaking the truth in love. He's saying one day it will become clear to you that you have rejected me. But on that day, it's going to be too late. And you'll want to follow me, but because you've rejected me, you won't be allowed to follow me where I'm going. Truth in love, these are really heavy words. Jesus is talking about his sacrificial death on the cross for the sin of the world. That all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. But that those who condemn him, those who do not believe in him, have condemned themselves. Jesus is warning them in love. But they discount Jesus' warning. And instead, they dig in their heels and they continue to mock him. Look at verse 22. Secondly, the religious leaders say, what are you going to do, kill yourself? Like, this is sarcasm. This is sarcastic insult. The condescension behind this question is rooted in the Jewish belief that those who kill themselves go to the lowest part of Hades. And so the religious leaders correctly hear that Jesus is talking about his death, but they claim that if he kills himself, he's going to go to hell. But they're not concerned about him. They're not trying to warn him. They're not trying to change his mind. They're not trying to draw him out to think something differently. 
They're exposing the darkness of their unbelieving hearts and their sarcastic, condescending attitude, which is basically saying, Jesus, if you want to go to hell, go ahead. And again, Jesus isn't moved to anger. Rather, he responds in love, pressing into their unbelief and warning them a second time. You see this, Jesus cares so much for their salvation that he says the same thing again, just in a slightly different way. In verses 23 and 24, he says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Could Jesus be any more clear? Unless you believe that I am He, the Messiah, the Word of God in the flesh, the Son of David, the Son of Man, Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sin and be separated from God here and now and for all eternity. Jesus, once again, clearly and emphatically associates himself as God. He is saying, I am. I am the great I am. I am God. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I am the Savior of the world. I am the Lamb of God. I am everything that I've said that I have been coming to do. I am who I am. And he's saying, unless you repent and believe in me for the forgiveness of sin, you will die in your sin and be separated from God forever. This is a Beautiful, powerful, intense moment. And it's at this point when we step back and we look at this encounter, we hope and pray that the religious mob would repent and believe in that by believing in him to be the Messiah, they would also have life in his name. That's the hope in this moment. But John includes it. He goes to great pains to unpack this moment because he wants us to know that the opposite happens. The religious leaders do not repent and believe. They continue to attack Jesus and try to justify their own belief in him with arrogant, condescending insults. They rank it up, ramp it up one more time. Look at verse 25. Finally, they say to him, who are you? They're not saying, who are you? You speak as one with authority. We've never heard anyone teach these things. We want to know more. We want to understand more. Could you please help us open our eyes, soften our hearts? Could you help us understand what it is it means for you to be God in the flesh, in our very presence? They're not saying, who are you? They're saying, who are you? Metaphorically, they are bowing up to Jesus and sticking their bony fingers in his chest, saying, who do you think you are? In other words, they resort to calling him a nobody, completely dismissing him. And this is the epitome of blind, 
self-righteous unbelief. And on the whole, what they're saying to Jesus, the attitude of their hearts, the thoughts of their minds, the words from their lips, you're a bastard. You can go ahead and go to hell if you want to, and nobody cares. Go to hell, you bastard nobody. That's the heat of this conflict. And how low the religious leaders have sunk. Unholy chutzpah. And why Jesus doesn't strike them down right then and there, I have no idea. But he is slow to anger, full of kindness. And once again, without anger, motivated by grace, Jesus is moved in love to speak the truth. In the midst of insult, he shares the gospel. Look at verses 26 through 29. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing on my own, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. When you have lifted up the Son of Man then you will know that I am He. Jesus is talking about His cross, which awakens us to the love of God. As the Apostle Paul will later write to the church in Rome, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were self-righteous, blind, mockers of God. When we had an independent spirit, setting ourselves above God, wanting to do uh, our life in our way, considering ourselves God. God demonstrates His love for us and giving Jesus to die for us. Jesus is talking about his resurrection, which enables us to have new, abundant, and eternal life in the love of God. As the apostle Peter will later write to the church, praise be to the God and Father, both witnesses, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. When the Son of Man is lifted up on a cross and from the grave, you will see that He is the Messiah. This is Jesus' response. Under personal attack, He doesn't flee, and He doesn't escalate the conflict by smiting them on the spot. Jesus takes advantage of the opportunity to speak the truth in love, to share the hope of the gospel who is Him. 
And his invitation stands today. In the ways that we are blind, in the ways that we think more highly of ourselves than him, in the hardness of our heart, we cannot get rid of Jesus. in the ways that we are trying to live for ourselves above all else, in the ways that we are trying to be our own God and have others serve us and our will, we cannot flee from his claims. In the ways that we hold Jesus at arm's length as we push him away, as we push his scriptures away, as we quench the Holy Spirit, we cannot discredit his character. We can't soil his reputation on a technicality and personally attack him and think that we are justifying our own unbelief. We Stand face to face with Jesus who in love, out of compassion for our souls, wanting what is best for us, knowing what is best for us. We stand before him who speaks truth and love to us and says, in all of those ways, in all of those things, in the confusion of your mind, in the ugliness of your heart, In the despicability of your attitude toward me, I still love you. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to keep pursuing you. I'm going to keep speaking the truth because I love you and I care about your now and I care about your eternity. That's his love for us. Jesus is who he says he is, and he does what he says he does. And John is intent to include this part in his testimony because he wants us to face Jesus and answer the question. And the question he poses to us is, how will you respond? Who do you say Jesus is? Jesus died to remove my arrogant, self-righteous, condescending attitude toward him. In the big ways and in the small ways. He died for you as well. What are those ways in your life? Where is it that you are Rejecting Jesus in your thoughts, in your heart, in your action, in your relationship. Know that He loves you so much. He wants to, by the work of the Spirit, bubble those things up in your life. To search your heart and show you those things so that you can bring them out of darkness and into the light so that He can forgive them and remove them from you and replace those things with himself and his love and his kingdom, which is far better than holding on to yourself as your own God or any idol that separates you from the love of God and experience the fullness of his life in Christ. That's the invitation as we come to the table. Jesus has died 
for us. And we are thankful. And when we hold out our hands and we take that bread and we dip it in the cup and we feed on him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving, we're saying, yes, you are Lord. I need you. Thank you for dying for me. And yes, Lord, you are risen. And I believe in you and in your name, you have given me life. Fill me with your presence. Fill me with your spirit that I can walk in holiness and righteousness according to what pleases you. As we come to the Lord Jesus at his table this morning, our response is to turn from sin and to cling to him. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He is life. And by believing in him, we have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love, which knows no height or depth or east or west. We thank you for your great love that you have poured out upon us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that as we come to you through the bread and the wine, you would pour out this love in our hearts once more. Come, Lord, be made known to us in the breaking of the bread. Show yourself to be our risen Messiah and King. And impart to us abundant life. We acknowledge you as the Son of the Father, the forgiver of our sins, and the Savior of the world. We pray for your glory and our freedom and joy. In your name, Jesus. Amen.